Welcome to the Silicon Trail Podcast. My name is Michael, and with me is my co-host, Johnny. On the Silicon Trail, we discuss recent technology and business trends, and observe where technology is going with an eye for unmet gaps and potential opportunities. To, to win. That's, we're talking about winning here. This podcast yeah. is about winning. Excellent. Just my problem. Just build a whole company around my problem, specifically. Yes. In comparison to what you guys do, Amazon looks like a bastion for worker rights. You're gonna go get that hundred million dollars that SoftBank is probably widening around somewhere. I feel that's not so much an app idea, more than it is a super villain plan to take over the world, John. If you smell what the rock is cooking, that is. Today's episode was recorded on May 31st, 2020. Our topic for today, Spotify. All right, so as a follow-up item from last week when we were talking about Shopify and one of the, the big success stories of Shopify, of course, being... Uh, Kylie Cosmetics. Turns out Ford's did a uh, independent study and they realized that no, Kylie is not actually a billionaire, Johnny. They said she's worth 900 million. So I don't think yes. they, she's, she's, she's going to the, to the homelessness shelter anytime soon. So. Yes. But that, that extra 100, uh, 100 million. What is that? She's, she got to get hustling. She got to get on her grind. What that's just, what is that? How can you stand? being anything less than a billionaire at 900 million. Uh, you know, I, 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 I think I told you this in the text, but we don't live in a vacuum. Just hearing this report in this week of where you heard, what is it, over 40 million or one in every fourth, four Americans is out of a job. The social unrest that's been going on. And you see this report of someone lying we're saying that they're a billionaire when they're really nine hundred million dollars worth. It's like, ah, what's I mean, the important things in this life? I mean, net, life net, like? net, she's uh, still clearly very, very successful, and she yeah, clearly I mean, has a lot of business acumen. Give, would, give her, give her a year or two. I'm pretty sure she'll reach that billionaire status. Come on. I also wouldn't be surprised if Kanye West is not actually as rich as he says he is, but whatever. There, oh. as you said, there are more important things. Yeah. He, yeah. I don't know. I don't get these people. Shopify is still good. Oh yeah, of course. Shopify is still clearly a, a wealth generating machine. Yes, it is. By the by, people have been responding to the Shopify local Twitter or they've been retweeting and liking it because uh, I will go and tag these local businesses. Look at our first mini success, Michael. Congratulations. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Anyways. All right. So on, on to more serious still somewhat related to reality television uh, news. The president of the United States declared uh, an executive order challenging section uh, 230. So the timeline of this was that on Wednesday, I believe Twitter marked uh, one of Trump's tweets as potentially misleading. Uh, Trump had been talking about mail-in ballots and voter fraud, which is something he's been talking about on Twitter basically since he was elected as president, or maybe even before he was elected as president, Twitter marked as misleading. Trump came out with a tweet and said that 
Uh, he's going to have a press conference. He believes that social media has been repressing his voice and that he won't stand for it. Two days later, he signs an executive order, which challenges Section 230. And what that is, is so really in the 90s, Bill Clinton sent a, uh, signed a bill into law, which said that, well, rather gave protections to large internet companies onto the responsibility of the content that people publish on those, uh, on those websites. Basically, the idea is that if you're a newspaper or a magazine or other publication, you can be sued for the things that people put in your magazine because you publish it. The idea back in the 90s, well, well, anyone can be on the internet and anyone can contribute. Therefore, it is unfair to these internet entities for them to have to be responsible for this type of scale. It's called the moderator's dilemma. Trump's executive order empowers states to go and challenge this, though by the appearance of it, it's mostly, I believe people say, political theater. What do you think about this? Because these has widespread ramifications for the expression that people have on the internet. We might see a fight on the internet that could be equivalent to the, what's happening on the streets in some ways. These companies do not like anybody challenging no. the 230 at all. It's their, it's, it's their oxygen, right? If without, without this, they would be sued. They'd have to police all the things that they've haven't really done, right? Well, they, they haven't they, done in the United States. What do you mean? Because, for example, in France, Google has to censor their own, uh, their own search, their own uh, instant search results, because you're not allowed to slander political figures in France. So even an instant search results that said, let's say, somebody's, I believe this is France, but it may be another European country. Let's say your, your search is your president's name. And then it just so happens because of the Google search algorithms, the first things that come up are negative. Let's say your president is, you know, somehow uh, unflattering in some way. Google had to go and censor those in, sure. in those countries. Sure. But you're talking about, I mean, how many politicians could there possibly be in France compared to the population of like the US? So, I mean, I'm going to dumb it down, but you could basically have a list of a thousand people and say, if you see any of these words that have any negative connotation on sentiment on these thousand people in our search, remove it, right? That's a mm -hmm. relatively simple algorithm to implement. But this, if you open this up, that would mean like if Michael, you and I posted something that was it somebody else wouldn't like or, or something, what is, what is it that would then change, right? Um, is it something like if I put something about drugs, companies, about yeah, violence? Companies could be sued. And held responsible and for that content. They, yeah, and they would be held responsible for moderating. Um, now, the, the of course, everyone's talking about the Facebook and the Twitter impacts of this. However, Wikipedia, uh, the, the 4chan site, Reddit, 8chan, I believe, which is the, the even more conservative or the even more underground. I, I don't think conservative and 8chan go together. The more, what's the word I'm looking for? The more extreme. Okay. The, more, the more extreme in their beliefs. And all of those would also be, be held liable for everything it puts. Now, the reason why this section has been challenged by both sides of the aisle is the Republican side, they believe that conservative voices have been stifled on major social media platforms. The Democratic side believes that social media platforms and these large tech companies should be more responsible for the slandered misinformation and cyberbullying that happens. I, I anticipate a fight, but what are your thoughts? 
I well, there's already a a fight now from the tech industry fighting against this order and fighting against any potential future escalations of this. Yep. Um, but I will also point out, let's not forget net neutrality was struck down in the past few years. Net neutrality, which was of course the big staple of internet fairness and uh, that was fought very hard for over a decade ago for years and years and years that was recently struck down in the past two years. But wouldn't you say there were some folks in the industry that stood to benefit from the lack of uh, net neutrality? Of course, the ISPs. Right. But there who stands to benefit from uh, from, uh, this? uh, Is it called section? Section 230? Section so, 230. So who, who well, depending stands, on who you, depending on what side of the aisle you potentially uh, believe in, I, either conservative voices and conservative media outlets stand to benefit from it, uh, or if you're on they? the other side, folks who want these social media companies to have a bigger responsibility in preventing the, mis- the spread of misinformation. Right. <sighs> and of course, I know you, Michael, you're more eloquent in these areas than I am, but it's also been a very sad week. Yes, it has been an incredibly, an incredibly sad week. Of course, we have uh, another instance of police brutality uh, against an African-American male, George Floyd. And two posts that I quite enjoyed. One was from President Obama, uh, where he shared his thoughts on it. And he note that I saw him there, he was, he was saying, hey, I know 2020 has been a hard year and we all want to get back to normal. But in 2020, this cannot be normal. That the, the senseless killing of, of minorities, and especially of African-Americans in this country, that, that cannot be something we accept as normal. Second great powerful post, of course, I saw on Twitter was that I believe it was actually a CNN uh, interview with the mayor of Atlanta, I, which I, we need to find her name. What is the mayor of Atlanta's name? Because she, uh, the, she that, that was a very powerful, powerful, great speech from not only a mayor, but, but a black mother. Keisha uh, Lance Bottoms. Yes. She had a very powerful speech. Um, uh, like to it. So that's, uh, those are, those are two, those were two of the most powerful posts that really resonated with me when I saw, that I saw on social media. Of course, we, we have protests going on all throughout the country right now. And it's, there, there's a lot of, of different information going on about those individual protests, a lot of different hashtags going across Twitter. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's not, it's, it's something I remember in the, I remember in the eighties, uh, early eighties, early nineties, uh, watching the LA riots that happened after Rodney King, of course, understanding that the only difference between that and what had happened, what had been happening for hundreds of years was the fact that there was a video recorder technology now. Of course, the difference between this and what's been happening for hundreds of years is that there's cell phones and that there's cameras now. Um, and yeah, this is certainly, a, it's, it's a topic bigger than a tech podcast. Uh, it's bigger than any podcast, but it's, uh, I, I most completely, uh, what's it called, resonate with what President Obama said, which is, uh, this can't be normal. This, this can't be the normal. We can't accept this as, as how America is. <sighs> yeah. 
Yeah. One one of the things I I heard, I don't know who's said this, but said if you had enough proof to fire them, you had enough proof to charge them. And if they had just charged the guys when they fired them, could I wonder if they would have just avoided all of this. Well, even beyond that, I mean, charging, being charged, and being convicted are two different things. Oh, yeah. But we, you know the convicting is going to take time. Right? You, you are I still, mean, regardless, allowed but, to be in, in... But the problem is law. from historical precedents, sure, the sure. conviction doesn't come. No, I... Listen, I, I 100%. But a conviction doesn't come within a week either, right? Sure. But a charge can come. Sure. Right? And actually, so the Atlanta-based rapper, do you know Killer Mike, the Atlanta-based rapper? I didn't, but I do now because I watched his eight-minute video. Very emotional. I believe he's been a very outspoken activist uh, for a bunch of, of different important causes. And what he said was, now is not the time for now is not the time for senseless anger. Now is the time for active anger. If you're going to be angry, take it out on the ballots. If you want a new police chief, vote in a new police chief. If you want a new representative, run for office. Yeah. If you don't believe in the the representatives of the leadership, or at whatever level that you have, and it, you know whatever opposite of that you're on, great part of our country's democracy is that. Your vote matters as much as the vote of a millionaire, billionaire, trillionaire. We don't have any of those, but we have some trillion dollar companies. Uh, it matters as much as a politician, matters as much as a aristocrat, quote unquote, matters as much as a celebrity. That's the, the great thing about democracy. Right. Well, Michael, shall we get going with our main topic yes. for today? I'm not, even gonna, I'm not even sure what to edit out of that section. Oh, leave it as this. It's beautiful. Uh-huh. Wonderful contribution. Uh-huh. Not running for, I was going to say, I'm not running for office. Yet. Go in the box. Yes. It's okay. You'll make money and be like, I don't know what to do with this. There we go. Okay. So, um, difficult transition, but, but we have to make it dun, to dun, our topic dun, of the day. What was that sound effect? <laughs> It's about music. First of all, that was... You could have just done a drum roll if it was about music. That was worse than the drum roll you used to do. There. I actually had some rhythm. You used to just do like... I told you Spotify. I've been inspired. There we go. All right. Yes, our topic for today is Spotify. Of course, it's continuing our Rich Tech, Poor Tech series in which we will get to... At the end of this conversation, an assessment of whether or not Spotify is rich or poor tech. But first, what is Spotify? So Spotify, of course, is the great media streaming company for the past 14 or so years, combination of music and now, of course, moving into podcast space, which we'll talk about its history and some of where it's going a bit later. But core business model of Spotify, it has both an ad-supported free version available to everyone, and it also has a $9.99 per month premium subscription that allows you access to store 10,000 different songs on your, uh, on your personal library, download songs onto any of these platforms available for Android, iOS, uh, Echo, at-home devices, all of these different types of things. Uh, Spotify went public in 2017. In Q1, it reported results of $2 billion in revenue. 
great thing about Spotify, it actually makes most of its money from subscribers. It makes very little of its revenue from ads. So it made of the 2 billion and made in revenue 1.7 billion from subscribers directly. Makes a profit of 420 million, making it a profitable company. Now it was not yet a profitable company when it IPO'd in 2017. And I haven't been able to see if it still has this particular contract, but Spotify used to have a certain contract worked out with music, uh, record labels rather, that it had a 70-30 split. So of every dollar that it made, it would go and uh, pay the record label 70 cents and take 30 cents for itself. I think it's also worth to mention, of course, as well, is that Spotify has been a great, uh, successful stay-at-home stock. So its stock went up from 117 during the start of the lockdown or the global lockdown time, all the way up to 190 as of last Friday. So that's a little bit about uh, Spotify as a product. But of course, it also has an interesting history and it has really, really interesting founders or one interesting founder, at least, I believe. And Jari, why don't we talk a little bit about the, the interesting history of this product now, of this uh, Swedish-based product, right? <clears throat> so Spotify was founded in 2006. It took two years to work out deals with music companies. So it launched in 2008 with 50 people already employed. The founders had already invested $10 million and it was launched in Europe as a free service in 2009. And two years later, it launched in the US after they could get enough support from the music labels so that they could provide their users with a full experience. They're very user-centric in a lot of their uh, decisions, Michael. Mm -hmm. And then it, some, some key parts of their history, 2013, Lords uh, Royals uh, became a global sensation through streaming. I believe then, that was the first considered like Spotify success story. And it'll speak to a little, we'll speak to some of the culture changes that Spotify has been able to allow, but I believe that was one of the first songs that would not have been as successful as quickly if not for being showcased on, I believe it was Sean Parker's album or his playlist in, uh, in Spotify. Yes, you're right, you're right. Um... And going along those lines, it was actually in 2015 where Thinking Out Loud by Ed Sheeran became the first song to pass 500 million streams, right? It was founded by Daniel Ek and Martin Lorentzen. They're yes. both Swedish. Yes. Daniel is okay. the, the more interesting founder, at least I think he's the technical one here. Well, but he, I believe he fits, he fits the description almost to a T of tech founder prodigy. Right. So right. he has an interesting story. I know he was, he was born out, a little bit outside of Stockholm, Sweden. I don't exactly remember uh, where he was born, but in, in the country of Sweden, he described his childhood as his family didn't have much, but they always had music. And it's interesting because in the late 1990s, I believe the year was 1997, as a 13-year-old, he started to create uh, websites for individual companies. And then at first he said, oh, you know, pay me a hundred. And then it was 200 and then it was, and then he said it was like 500, 1000. And I believe after a certain period of time, he started employing people to make websites. And of course, this is before HTML5, this is before CS, uh, CSS3, this is before a lot of these WYSIWYG website builders. Building a website back then was a purely manual experience and there, there weren't really guides. 
like we have dynamic sizing and we have all these, uh, we have bootstrap and all these different guides now for how websites look. Back then the websites were more wild west. It was very, very limited. We're talking about HTML one here. But effectively, I think by the time he was 18, he was bringing in 500,000 per month from making websites. Uh, shortly after he founded uh, Avertigo and that was acquired by Trade Doubler to the point where after that acquisition, he retired for a And he was 23. Yes. And he was before he was even 23 years he old. He retired. He, and, and he has some great podcasts and great interviews. He doesn't do too many anymore of these, but he did a bunch of great podcasts back in 2015 and 2017, right around the IPO. And he talked about how he, as a, as a 23-year-old, now flush of cash, he really spent all of his money and wasted a lot of that money uh, throughout, throughout that time period on, on lavishness and what he calls a, a really self-insecure uh, self time. And he really is a, really is a really, really, really interesting person. Though his, of course, his partner and co-founder, Martin, who they ultimately ended up working with together to found Spotify, was actually the founder of Trade Doubler, which going back was the company that acquired his company. Right. The other part of this of why, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, Jared, what were you doing at 13? I was adjusting to life in Europe. Why weren't we building websites? Because we were adjusting to life in other countries. I think, I think we'll, we'll get to why they're, we'll get to and why they're successful. I think Sweden has a lot to do with it, to be honest. It, no, it, it definitely is. But um, Sweden for a while has had quite a thriving um, you know, entrepreneurship and tech scene. And this is just further, further proof, right? You know, the rise, the rise of Spotify, but the, the part that's the, the part that leads us to Spotify from Daniel, Ick's uh, very interesting background is this. So yes, he retired, uh, you know, when he was 23 and get some money and, and all that stuff afterwards. But one of the things he was eyeing, and I guess he grew up with, with music, as you said, is he was looking at Napster. He was yes. looking at how easy it was to f for people to get music illegally and how difficult it was for people to get music legally. And he wanted to solve this. And yep. that is what inspired him to actually, wor start working on Spotify. So actually, let's, 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 let's get into this, which is how did Spotify become successful? And I think a big part of it, as he, he gives a lot of credit to Napster, Napster definitely showed something. But for those who, who don't remember what Napster was, Napster was a peer-to-peer, -peer, was really the first successful peer-to-peer -peer music sharing tool in, in the world. Came out in the 90s and it was shut down. Uh, the record labels came after it like crazy, but- Was it, it like 15 billion or something ridiculous that they, they charged them to pay in the lawsuits? Yes, yes, and which, is is what the equivalent of almost almost one whatsapp nowadays um <laughs> but what was about Touché. to say but yeah so i think daniel what he saw was this is a great consumer experience but the business model doesn't work right because the consumer gets to explore all these different type of music and i remember even back during those lawsuits i would see interviews with these artists where they're talking about the good and bad and they're talking about the bad, of course, we're not getting paid for our music. Cause back then the record labels 
we're really all about CD sales and concerts. And of course, artists don't get paid that much CD sales. We'll get into how little they get paid per stream now as well. But the positive that some artists were saying was all of a sudden, all these people knew our music. All of these people who have never been able to go get a CD or wouldn't have the money to go explore all these, they all of a sudden knew the music, knew every lyric of a song. I don't remember what band it was. I was prescribed to Metallica, but I, I know that's completely wrong because, because Metallica was really anti at Napster. It was some other band. But it spoke to this great consumer model that really the users enjoyed. I don't remember if I was on Napster back then, but I, or like my friends gave me some MP3 files from Napster, but it really introduced me to a bunch of new music. But of course, what he saw was, hey, this, this model doesn't work. And in fact, the, business, the record labels came after it. So he found a model that did work. So Michael, I was at the time using Pandora, which I was introduced to through some of my friends in college. But what were you, what were you using to listen to music? So I remember at that back time? in 2008, I, my friend told me about Spotify. I, v, I used the Swedish VPN and I think his PayPal account in order to sign up for Spotify in 2008. And it was limited in the type of music that had it, it was on it, but it was way more music than the music I had on my iPod. So I, I, I've probably been using Spotify in one form or another. I've actually moved away to Google Music now because it allowed me to store all of the music I had on my iPod and CDs uh, originally back when I was on Android. Right, which they're now taking away. Yes, yeah, this happens. Uh, but yeah, so I, I was actually, I've been using Spotify since actually before it came to the United States. So you use Spotify because you were an early user through your Swedish VPN. Then you use Google Play Music because that did allow you to upload your your own content up there and be able to listen to it. Which but of course, awesome before then, it was iTunes when you could afford it and pirated music when you couldn't. I think I think we, we hit that territory, Michael, when we started working. Well, actually, let's let's talk about that. So, let's remember the model of music ownership, and the key word there is ownership. Before Spotify came of streaming, it was you either bought a physical CD, or you had to pay ninety nine cents for a DRM'd music file. You remember when Apple had its own DRM? And you couldn't yeah. put it on any other MP3 player. Me having an Android phone because they were cheaper, this was really tough for me. And this is also why I use Google Play ultimately because I had an Android phone. iTunes is not available on Android at that time, I don't believe. I couldn't really get my music onto my Android phone. I think I had a Droid Incredible was my first smartphone. And I had to un-DRM Apple's ACC files, which is its old music file uh, format. And that convert that to MP3, and only then could I get that onto my onto my devices. Wherein, to be honest, it was probably easier, and a lot of the times it was easier, just to pirate that music instead and get it in normal MP3, and actually get it in higher quality, get it in Augvorvis uh, file format, which is a higher quality file format, get it in FLAC file format, which is a lossless based audio format. You could get higher quality music by pirating and then you could buy by buying it legally. Yeah, let me speak to some of my experiences and my anecdotes. So I've always been a fan of Apple's iPods 
I was always on the iTunes bandwagon. I downloaded the music, I put it on, I had and I sync it. Right, the shuffle. Well, I never got the shuffle, but yes, the shuffle was also there. So I, I was using um, Apple's iTunes. You know, you have to download it, hook it up to your iTunes music, then hook up your, your iPod and be able to listen to that. But yes, it was only on Apple's devices, which thankfully worked great. Um, I was introduced to Pandora music through my friends. We put it on in the, you know, we, we worked in the lab, right, as engineers. And, but the one thing that kept me away from Pandora was I just saw the investment you had to make, right? You had to, you know, by saying you like this or you don't like this, you tuned, it was a radio, right? Yeah, it was completely it was a radio. Random. Yes. It was a radio it was experience. It was random, it was shuffled. And so you had to build these playlists. I think he, he paid for it at the time. Um, and so I just, it was great. I loved it, but I was like, man, if I'm going to build, <clears throat> excuse me, if I'm going to build a music library on Pandora, I have to like invest the time by telling you I like this music and I don't like this music. And I was even thinking, I was like, I wish Pandora would allow me to export my friend's stuff and put it into mine so I could listen to that great music that he's already curated. Right? Mm -hmm. So that just also, why I couldn't choose what song you want to listen to on Pandora. No, you kind of just pick the themes or your playlist. If you, you know, if you're a paid service, uh, if you paid for the service, it was slightly different. But that, that was the challenges where I never really got into Pandora. So I stuck to, you know, loading music onto my iPod and listening to it that way. And then when Google Play Music came out, just like you, I was like, yes, now I can put my music, you know, on the, if you will, on the cloud and it'll continuously sync. You know, it was a desktop app that ran periodically and I could have all my music that I wanted and listen to it anywhere, um, you know, with Google's uh, services, which is great. Then when Spotify came, I didn't quite use it at the beginning, but now I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a big Spotify, I'm a, I'm a Spotify premium user. And for me, I think what made Spotify successful was that a couple things. One, yes, the fact that you no longer own the music, but you had immediate access to it, even yes. as a free user, right? I, I get it as if they can't just give the thing away for free. They have to put limitations. So you had limits on how many you could skip. I mean, when they first released it, it was a different model. So for free, you had access to less well, randomized you, streaming and a few playlists. Right. So but you also had a fairly hours in 2000. Yes, you did have a limit of how long you could stream a week. This is right. all, these are all things that I've, I've gone by the wayside in terms of their business model. But there, there were more limitation and upsell they were doing back then when ads were a bigger part of their business. Right. So, yeah, now you had a freedom, you had a, I don't know when their apps came out, but they, you know, they had a website that you could go listen to at any time. It was ad supported, uh, any music. Well, one thing that was great, and this is where, to me, it was the big, the big differentiator for Spotify is this. Yes, I had like my music library and I'm the kind of person that would like download entire artist discographies and organize them and sort them so i wouldn't just have like one album or one song i'd have like several albums from an artist and so i like keeping that organized but then in, every time something new came out you know you had to download it you had to catalog it and blah, blah blah it was a lot of work with spotify i could just never bother right i have an app i could listen to it right away i could um play the album, play a playlist. Yes, it was random. I didn't have control. And then again, I was like, you know what? I just can't sign with these ads. I'm going to pay. And then you get the ability to download them. I think you can still create playlists as a free user. Can yes. I use it as a while? Okay. So it's just that convenience, right? Anytime you could listen to music 
again, just reiterating, in my old approach, if I listen to a song, I'd have to go find the song, uh, download it, put it on uh, through iTunes, sync it to my, uh, to my iPod, and then be able to listen to it, right? And then iPod syncing just sucked. Uh, you know, it just, it just sucked. Like, either you have to do one by one or you have to do, like curate your entire music. It was you just had such to plug in your, your iPod into your computer. It would turn on iTunes and then it would back up for a good 10, 20 minutes first. And yeah, then it would sync for another 10, 20 minutes because in USB 1.0 days, that transfer rate was slow. Yep. So I mean, even now, I, I can't tell you the last time I actually sat down to say, I'm going to up, update my music and make sure whatever I have, uh, it's on my um, it's on my iPod. So just Spotify just was such a, you know, you, you open the app, you search whatever artist you want, you can start playing that music immediately. That was the convenience factor that got me to jump on the Spotify bandwagon. And like I said, I never adapted Pandora because it just looked like so much upfront work to get to a point of where I wanted it to be, which was what my friend had curated and building on top of it. And actually, I want to speak to that point, which is another thing that I believe that made Spotify really successful was the playlists, was the social aspect of things. The ability, so there's, there's one thing of, hey, here's all this music, but here, like we said before of Lord in the song Royals, it was, it was put on Sean Parker, who is the founder of Napster, in front of his playlist. That's how people discovered it. And you can go look at other people's playlists and you can look at, you could discover all these new type of music. So I think that's the third element as well, which is discovery, which is Spotify puts a lot into helping you discover new music through its recommendation system. I would still say that through its recommended playlists and its recommended music, it trounces, it has a head start, of course, but it trounces Google, it trounces uh, Apple Music, it trounces Tidal in terms of recommending you new music that you would be interested in. Yep, and this ties perfectly with their acquisition history that I just wanna quickly go through. You'll, you'll see how they were able to integrate these companies and further push for their personalization. So 2014, they bought the Echo Nest, which was a music intelligence company. The following year, they bought Seed Scientific, uh, a data science consulting firm and analytics company. And then they merged that into being their advanced analytics unit within uh, Spotify. 2016, they bought Crowd Album, which collects media of performances shared on social networks. 2017 was a big acquisition year for Spotify. I think they had uh, four, five. So Soundalytics audio detection startup that they used to, for personalized playlists. Mighty TV, which was an app connected to TV streaming services that recommends content to users. And they use this for their advertising efforts on the free tier. They bought a AI startup called Nilan, and they use that for their personalization and recommendation features for users. Uh, they bought Soundtrap, an online music studio startup. 2018, they bought Lounder, which was a music licensing platform. And then basically from 2019 onwards, they bought, uh, they started getting into the podcasting game with the Gimlet Media, Anchor FM, Podcast, Podcast Networks, Soundbetter, which was a music production marketplace. And then 2020, they've gone full on by getting Bill Simmons Sports Blog and Podcast Network, The Ringer. And then most recently, the Joe Rogan podcast becoming a Spotify exclusive. But you can see, again, as we went over with like Shopify, which had an interesting history of first getting a lot of design, uh, mobile app development firms, and then later getting into the uh, uh, fulfillment business as their right. business developed. You can start yeah, seeing this building here. the technology and then they're getting right. the content. Exactly. So they, they built out their technology. They were able to focus on 
you know, they, they quickly realized, as you highlighted, that their strength would be their ability to personalize mm-hmm. that information and use information we're collecting to do more, um, more features, more playlists. Uh, one of the cool things that I really liked about Spotify, I, I don't know, like maybe they'd stop doing it or I don't see it come up, but was your streams for the year. So I think 2016, 2017, uh, I saw that, that it would come up at the end of the year or the start of the next year. They say, hey, here's all the music that you listen to the most during the past year, which was mm-hmm. like a nice way of having like a playlist of your best uh, hundred. I think, I think another aspect of their success that's more internal to the company, actually. And, and I think this is a lot of their product success. And, and clearly they have a strong idea of, of companies to acquire technologies to bring in. But so the, the story apparently behind them going into podcasts and more news is that during a hack a, a hack a week, one of the engineers was going, hey, I wonder how many people use Spotify in the car. So he looked at Bluetooth pairing information. He basically say, okay, look at car models. And apparently there was tens of millions. So he's like, oh, oh, this is a big deal. But then he would look at the time when it was paired with the car. I found that Spotify wasn't being used so much. So they did user studies with these users that, hey, you know, why aren't you using our service in the car? Do you not like it? Is there something wrong with our app? So on and so forth. And they would say, hey, uh, no, I, I love Spotify, but the problem is when I'm in my car, I'm, I'm listening to weather, I'm listening to news, I'm listening to, you know, spoken word. And that's when they realize, oh, okay, we got to be more than just music. So using data, and that's one of the key things that we said before with, uh, with their data science uh, team and the acquisitions that they, they made, they definitely use data. They let definitely look at what their users do. And they're one of, I would say, the most data-driven, data-informed, data-powered companies uh, in the world. No, they are. They are. I, I was just going through the notes. One, one thing I want to hark back to is one of the motivations for Daniel as he started Spotify was one was to solve music piracy, right? As we already discussed. But the second part was he said that some of his friends just had a horrible taste in music and he wanted to help them discover new music. So this, <laughs> <laughs> So you can see how this has been something, and again, we just went over the acquisition, right? So you can see how they focused on the analytics piece and companies that were bringing this information together. That's to, greatly to ironic, actually, given their oh, yeah. impact on the music industry, which we'll, which we'll get to, but that's ironic. Sorry, continue with your story. Right. So, and again, right, just reiterating that, right? Like you can see from the acquisition history, how they focused on how we personalize and, and build recommendation features for our users so that they can, they are, constantly discovering new music in addition to the music that they're listening to. Um, that was an interesting part. So uh, go ahead. Actually, so I was going to ask, so there's, there's one more thing. So of course we talked about Pandora. Rhapsody was another company that came before this. Napster, of course, was another company that they came before this. Why was Spotify able to be successful in all this? Why is it still successful now? Because now there, before it didn't have much competition. Now it has a lot of competition. It has, and they count YouTube as competition. They have, and YouTube is competition, right? We, we, we would put YouTube playlists in the background just, just for music. They count, uh, what was about to say, they count uh, now Apple Music before then Beats Radio as competition. There's Google Music, Pandora, of course. All of these are competition now, but when they started, no one could crack this code. So a few, one thing stuck out to me, I wanted to get your opinion on how right this is. So two things needed to happen for these folks to be successful. One is they needed 
to get the music label deals, which means they needed to be able to get themselves in front of the right people for the music labels. But the second thing is, as I said, by the time that they were founded, they already had 50 people working for them. They'd already invested $10 million into it. Here's my question, which is, could this company actually have been successful if the founders were broke? You know, that's, that's actually an interesting part um, in our, as, as, as you're saying that, because I don't see anything in these guys' history that would indicate they had relationships with the music industry. Right? They had, uh, it was, he told the story. So it was through a connection, someone named David something, I believe. Okay. And he had connections to the music industry. So that was the connection that they had had. Right, but usually when you think about this in, in hindsight, you'd think someone who's either uh, typically either a music industry veteran because the, the nature of this is that you're taking content that was created by other people and mm -hmm. providing it in a new manner, right? It's not right. like you're a company that's coming in, providing a brand new product and disrupting the market with stuff well, that you own so that you can take that over and, and kind well, of this, surprise this, the this, incumbents. I, I, would, I would argue that this is highly different because this entire model, this entire payment model is very different than anything the record labels were prepared for or ready for. But... Uh, it's very specifically, Daniel also says as well that, hey, if he was a music insider, if he was in this industry, he would never have founded Spotify because he would know all the reasons it would fail. But again, though, back to the question, which is, look at this much startup capital they're able to put into it because they had had successful companies in the past. Right. Look at, likewise, their, and you know, the same thing can be said with all the companies that came out of the PayPal mafia too, which is look at the amount of money they were to put in, look at the connections that these people had, these weren't had by Napster. These weren't had by these other people starting these companies. Was, you can't separate it from the success, of course. It's a part of the story, but was it a necessary part of the story? I think the connections certainly were. I'm not sure if the money was. I, I well, you know, if, unfortunately, sometimes money and, and connection goes hand in hand, right? If you didn't have the, the, the story that they had of founding those companies, maybe they wouldn't have had the money and they would not have had the but, connection. But sure, but hold on, but hold on. Let's, let's flip that. So this is, here's another comparison. So Snap, right? It was founded with a $1 million loan from Evan's parents. No VC wanted to touch it. It became successful when middle schoolers, local middle schoolers in Los Angeles started picking it up. That was a company that if they had not had the money, to really survive during those times and really get that out during those times, the market during that, it would not have made it. But this is, but this is, this is a, the difference though. With Snap, they had a product that didn't depend on previous contact. It was a communications platform, mm -hmm. right? It was a communications tool, right? And this is what I was arguing. With Spotify, they built the tech, right? But the core, their, one of their core things is that they're not making the music, right? This is why they're getting music the podcasting, labels. right? So they needed the, not just the partnership, like, yes, you can have money, but even that much money doesn't get you buying from, so, okay, I guess to answer your question, money wasn't necessary, but then my question is, how could they, how did they get music labels to agree to enough of this 
to do this? Was it maybe is it is it is this why they were able to be successful first in Europe, build some buzz, and then get into U.S.? Well, it's the but this has been started in the U.S. It's the same record labels. I mean, the big European record labels are the same. It's Sony. It's. Uh, I'm just trying to find a factor in this of why so it's, this could it's have been very, successful. It's very interesting. Which is so the other thing, of course, is Europe had faster internet. So streaming sure. music was a pain in the butt in in 2005 in America with 512 down. But so this is interesting. So they're very. They kind of gloss over the conversations. It might have been that easy. They they kind of gloss over the conversations when Daniel retells the story about meeting with the music execs. He said, right. hey, here's this model. Here is, he, he talks about how his connection was able to get him in front of the right people. I think that's key. But he said, hey, here's the model. Here's this. What do you guys think? And the music exists. Like he went to the top five large music record labels in New York. And they all just said, oh yeah. They, he, the, the way he tells the story, they just go, Oh yeah, this is great. Uh, come back to us. We'll, we'll start to, we'll start working this out. So sure. Uh, I guess uh, part of this is like, you don't, we don't have a lot of information around this probably because it's, you know, uh, private conversations between companies, but, sure, but at the very least he doesn't make it seem sound like it was a giant struggle. Sure. To get I, music companies on board. And I have a hypothesis throughout here. Is it possible that they saw the success of music? selling and how what it did to their industry through their partnership with apple that ah, they thought they are, that maybe they got screwed over they got screwed over on that deal right yes well yeah this initially i was thinking they, they were not very happy with the 99 cent price point mm-hmm. but th- there was so many people buying music right mm-hmm. that did they make up for it in terms of because now instead of having to buy the big thing that apple brought in and i don't want to dive too much but, into this but the relevant part is that apple brought in this thing where instead of buying before you had to buy an, an album yes right? yep, they, yep that's you a good know point. an artist would release an album maybe one two three maybe max four would be you know uh, music videos that they put out maybe one or two would be like top 100 top 50 what have you they'd be on trl right and then in order to get that one song you didn't, you didn't just pay for that song. You had yeah, to six buy five. that entire album, right? You had to get an entire CD album, which was a huge markup for the music industry. That's where they got a massive amount of their profits at the time, right? Relative to now. Then when Apple came in and said, okay, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to allow people, and this is where, where Apple with their more user-centric approach said, we're going to allow people to download not just albums, but individual songs at 99 cents, which the music industry did not like at all. But, but maybe due to that 99 cent price point, maybe that ability of more options for users, did that translate to more money coming in? And that they I mean, saw, this, this is my hypothesis. Did they see, whether, at the beginning, they may not have been happy with it, but did they see somewhat the success of it? And then that kind of convinced them to be a bit more open to Spotify? I think we're forgetting one more uh, factor in this, which is the record industry. So I... Any solution or any reason that says the record industry was innovative, I think is just complete wrong to begin with. Because the record industry has been one of the slowest to adapt, most stuck in industries for the past well, 100 years. However, I, would, I think what we're short, uh, uh, what we're not considering properly, and we talked about this both before, was the record industry for a good decade after 1990s was on an all out 100% war against music piracy 
and they said millions, millions upon millions upon millions of dollars were lost to music piracy. That's why they made the Apple deal in the first place. The Apple deal sucked for record labels. Record labels saw almost nothing. Artists saw almost nothing from those from the iTunes purchases. And the record labels really hated that. So I think there's a few things to connect. It's they saw piracy is increasing. It's not stopping. The, the internet speeds and technology is just making it easier. They had the terrible deal of iTunes. They see another person, and it's a connection. You know, you have the right person and talking to the right person coming in and saying, hey, I'm, I'm going to offer a new model, and this is how it benefits you, and, and I think we can, we can make a model where people would rather do this than to pirate music, which means, hey, that's net new profit for me as a, as a record label. I think these connections all together are kind of what allowed the record labels to be at the point where they said, oh yeah, this idea. And of course, you know, being the right person to talking to them, oh yeah, this idea, this sounds good. Uh, let's do this. Because we don't talk about music piracy, so, at least in Europe and Americas that much anymore. We used to sure. talk about it. It used to be every other story. Right. So here's the other part. Here's the other part. Um, I knew this had happened. So the major labels and Merlin, which is a, a global indie label agency, took, had been granted equity stakes in Spotify yes. in the summer of 2009. So Sony, BMG had 5.8%, Universal 4.8%, and Warner 3.8%. So I think this is a key part of why I would say uh, it's Spotify, like a Hulu became successful. They, they're part owned by the record labels. Exactly. So this is definitely attributed, right? Because the, the, the music labels were tied to Spotify's success, right? If Spotify was successful, well, they have a, they have a vested interest in that and its success. And I think, I wonder, maybe they took this approach of course, with Spotify being a new startup, because Apple, they couldn't do that with Apple. Yeah. Yes, they could go buy public shares at Apple, but anybody could do that at that point. That wasn't the excitement there, right? But with Spotify, Spotify granting them equity stakes, they were able to say, hey, we will provide you our catalog, and your success also becomes our success, mm -hmm. not just in the business model, which I don't even know if they really had the business model um, uh, fully I mean, they had no the money to provide at the beginning, right. for sure. Right. So I know they had pay services from the beginning when they launched, but I don't know if they, that was, that was just a subscription, right? But there's other marketplace side to this, right? Which is how do we appropriately pay out to our artists, right? Mm -hmm. And the music labels. I don't know if they figured that out at that point, right? But they and did think, launch with uh, paid accounts from the beginning and limited free accounts. So I think in conclusion on this is like how they became successful initially, they, they came at the right time. They had right. the, they presented themselves as solving the right problem and they were the right person for this right. as well. Uh, with the right type of head start in terms of 50 talented people already working for you. And then with those people, they had a, a talented group of people who were starting to really invest in technology. They made proper acquisitions. So, you know, post having that good start, they definitely ran with the ball moving forward and within the product, as we mentioned at the beginning, the things that really made us successful from a user standpoint was the access to 
all of this music that was made available through their partnerships with the record labels, the personalization and recommendation engine that they really built around it, and also the social aspect of, of Spotify and the different playlists that, uh, that people would, uh, would use and share and really build me more into the social system. So I think all those together is really what allowed Spotify to be so successful uh, like it is now. All right, so that's a little bit about why Spotify, or at least why we believe Spotify has been successful thus far. But I think we have a lot more to cover on Spotify as a company, some of the controversies where we think it's going. And of course, finally, I think we're gonna have a, we're gonna have an interesting time, I foresee, making our rich tech, poor tech verdict on this one. Uh, so Johnny, why don't we do this? Why don't we, we stop here for this week and we go into a part two for next week where we'll touch on some of the, the controversies and the areas that haven't been so great for Spotify. We'll cover uh, the future, where we think the company is going. Do we think we'll be successful in the future? And finally, we'll make our verdict then. Sounds wonderful, Michael. I'm looking forward to us concluding this and getting to whether it is rich tech or poor tech verdict. All right, then. So with that, uh, you've been listening to another episode of The Silicon Trail. Have a great week. Stay safe, everyone. Uh, be kind and be loving to each other on social media. Take care. Thank you.